Hey guys, this is Greg Hostetler. Welcome to the Black Sheep Experience. Thank you for hanging out with me on the podcast today. All right, such a great podcast. I have a really great guest that uh, is going to join me today. You know, a few months ago, I stumbled across this book called Inner Christianity, and it's by a guy whose name is Richard Smalley, and I just became enthralled with the book. I just tore it up. Man, it it is such an excellent work. And, um, yeah, can't recommend it enough. He's got a ton of other books out there, and I'm just dying to get a hold of them. And I I, I am going to do that. But, dude, I've got a stack of books I need to read. But, But this guy has got such an incredible library of books that he's authored and um, I think you're really going to enjoy him and you should check out some of the stuff that he's that he's authored as well now um, the best way to do that and I thought I would direct you or give you that website now as opposed to possibly forgetting about it although I think we mention it in the podcast nonetheless the best way to check Richard out who he is, and the works that he's authored, and some of the other things that he's done, is to go to his website, innerchristianity.com. And um, yeah, I, I think that you're really going to enjoy the podcast. Now, before we jump into that, and we are going to there uh, just a second, um, I want to thank you guys for listening and being a part of this. Continue to connect with me on social media. That's uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter means so much to me. And then when you guys repost the podcast to your page, really, really awesome. In fact, some of you in some of the forums uh, or pages, whatever they call them now, uh, on Facebook have mentioned the podcast or mentioned things that you heard on the podcast. Dude, that is huge. Thank you so much for mentioning the Black Sheep Experience podcast. I really appreciate it. All right, then, let's jump into the conversation that I have with Richard Smoke. All right, guys, this is Craig Hostetler. Welcome to the Black Sheep Experience. I have with me today. Uh, I guess I'm really um, very excited about Richard Smalley, who uh, has written quite a few books, and uh, we'll t- we're going to talk about some of those today. Uh, Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, um, yeah, I really appreciate you being on. Uh, I'll give you just a little bit of my background. I uh, was a pastor at a, um, an Assemblies of God church. And so my background pretty much rests in that. And um, I, you know, very orthodox setting. And so then I left that church, left that organization, and sort of began to expand and explore uh, the things that I really believed or the things that I felt were important to me. And um, there's so little information out there, especially regarding anything moderately 
uh, esoteric. <laughs> and, yeah. and so I, I, I stumbled across your book, which was just uh, a really an amazing work. I know you've got a bunch of them, um, but the one in particular that, uh, that I kind of fell in love with was Inner Christianity. And uh, that was, what, 2002, I think, is when that came out. Yes, that's right. Yeah, so um, now I was online today looking at some of your books. There, I've, There's a couple of must-reads, I think. I saw Conscious Love, Insights uh, from Mystical Christianity. There was another one called Hidden Wisdom, A Guide to the Western Inner Traditions. And then uh, I guess in June you have a book called How God Became God. <clears throat> and then uh, the one that really looks amazing is uh, A Theology of Love, Reimagining Christianity Through a Course in Miracles. That doesn't come out till November, I think. Is that correct? That's right. How God Became God, uh, the subtitle is what scholars are really saying about God and the Bible. And it's basically an attempt to give a down-to-earth account of what contemporary scholarship is saying about the literal truth of the Bible. Because some of it, uh, from a historical point of view, is literally true, and some of it isn't. I mean, this is not just my opinion. This is the life work of uh, countless scholars talking, and this is just simply a digest of it, along with some, of course, opinions of my own, but um, that's really what that was about. Yeah, that looks good. I, um, I've kind of been a fan of the, uh, of the Course of Miracles uh, in and of itself, and so when I saw that, I thought, uh, that really looks pretty amazing. Um, but I, what I really want to talk to you about today is the the book Inner Christianity, uh, a guide to the esoteric tradition, which I got to tell you, it's just an absolutely brilliant book. Thank you. Yeah, I, I just, um, boy, I just loved every every bit of it. But so both the mystical, it seems to me, and the esoteric paths um, are generously, I guess, represented in the Christian tradition. Can you, can you talk about that just a bit? Because it seems to be a bit hidden from mainstream uh, Christianity. Yeah. Uh, for one thing, mystical and esoteric are words that you shouldn't um, attach too much differentiation to. That is to say, they're used in a lot of different ways. Uh, I mean, I can explain the difference as I see it, as often used, but... Um, that's not a hugely primary importance. Um, yeah, well, the, the whole thing about this is, are you going to uh, worship God purely externally? Or does all of this correspond to something in your own uh, psyche? And, for example, the stories in the Bible... Uh, are they really just about people who lived a long time ago, however amazing they may have been? Or do they speak uh, something about uh, inner experience and inner states? And the mystical and esoteric traditions have always, basically from the beginning, said the latter. Mm. Yeah, and, and the funny thing about it is it's, it seems to me that um, for the most part, perhaps at one point in time, that was present in, in, in traditional Christianity. It was accepted. Um, it was a, people like Origen, for, for example. 
right. but then somewhere along the the line, it uh, it seems to have gotten weeded out a bit. Well, it did a better job of surviving in um, Eastern Orthodoxy. It uh, did survive in uh, Roman Catholicism and Western Christianity, but at the risk of having to go very, very far underground or uh, uh, risk uh, investigations for heresy. For example, one of the most uh, important mystical writers of medieval times was Meister uh, Eckhart. He was a German who lives but the uh, uh, 13th and 14th centuries, and finally his writings got uh, a bit of attention with the authorities, and he was condemned by the Inquisition, and the only reason he didn't get into more trouble than he did is that he had the good luck to die um, before uh, they could do anything about it. And that is uh, not uh, uncommon. Uh, uh, Jakob Boma was another uh, Christian visionary. He lived in Germany around the turn of the 17th century, and uh, he got he, uh, he got into an enormous amount of trouble, and he made uh, an enormous enemy of the Lutheran pastor. This was Germany, uh, who just denounced everything he said and tried to uh, keep his books from getting published. So on and on, there's been this uh, very very deep fear. Uh, from institutional authorities about anything that points to the inner life, unless it is kind of very, very much under control of a church. And look at, look at, for example, St. Teresa of Avila. Look, I mean, if you look at her books, um, they're, they're almost excruciatingly humble. Mm-hmm. They're almost unreadably humble. Uh, and she keeps saying, well, just because I'm a lowly woman, I don't know, this and this and that. Well, uh, uh, why is she laying it on so thick? Well, <laughs> it's her own, uh, in a sense, for her own protection. And her uh, contemporary Saint John of the Cross did get into trouble for saying highly mystical things, even though they didn't challenge the Church. Uh, it uh, was very, very easy to cross the authorities, and um, that is one reason it's been so. Uh, survived, but it survived in a kind of underground way much of the time. Yeah, so how did we, I guess, and, and this is probably a, a difficult question, you know, for uh, for someone like me who's really kind of journeying into what I would consider to be esoteric, um, and, and so many of those things, I guess, have been demonized, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but one of the things I've I've really noticed, I guess, is Western Christianity has a has an incredible love and demand for what you might call systematic theology. Yeah. Um, and and so it, <laughs> in in the in the uh, the crevices, I guess, of my brain, it feels like I should have a systematic theology or be at least building one. But um, was that wasn't necessarily a prerequisite or, or a, a demand of esoteric Christianity, was it or was it? That, uh, that one should have a systematic theology? Yes. Well, there is a, a systematic a theology that's more systematic than the one of the churches, uh, because the one of the churches just simply doesn't make sense. 
Um, and there's no look. I'm going to put it bluntly. Let's hear. Let's let's take the story the way we're supposed to believe it, right? Yes. God got incredibly mad at the human race because somebody in Armenia six thousand years ago ate a piece of fruit. Now he got so mad at the human race that he uh, condemned all of them to eternal torment and damnation forever. But then he kind of felt bad about it, and he thought, well, maybe that's a bit much. So he set a part of himself down to earth and had it tortured to death, and somehow that made it all right with God. Uh, Except the problem is, if you don't believe all of this, you're still damned. Does that make any sense from any possible level? Well, it it doesn't make sense to me, (laughs) but it is, you know, it is what I was always taught, obviously. Yeah, but you can't you can't make a systematic theology out of that without having to bend logic, reason, and everything else. Backwards. Absolutely. I, I just was, I, I do some freelance editing here, and then I, I happen to uh, uh, work on a book of theology. I'm not even gonna I'm not gonna say what the subject is, much less the author or uh, the title. But a lot of it is just gobbledygook. Um, you know, you studied, I, I imagine you studied systematic theology, so you know a lot of the gobbledygook, do, but yes. a, lot of it, a lot of it is just, you know, the, the people just um, tripped up in their own verbiage, and this, this, is, this gets problematic for Christianity today, because until very, very recently, like a couple of generations ago, there's an enormous amount of strong social pressure uh, to believe in this stuff or to stick with the churches. Mm-hmm. This social pressure uh, was greatly reduced over the last 50 years. And so people don't, uh, uh, they're not being pressured to believe this stuff anymore. And as a result, a lot of them are just going. Mm. Now, there are a lot of other reasons they're going. Uh, now, here's the problem. Now, the, the, uh, in Protestantism, well, there's the evangelical church, evangelical, I'm sorry, evangelical Protestantism, where you're supposed to believe all this stuff literally. And that's that's as good as far as it goes if you do that. Uh, and I imagine many people who are involved in evangelical Christianity do. Um, but the liberal and mainstream churches have a bit of a problem because all of their clergy are extremely well-educated. Like, I told you about that book I was writing called How God Became God, What Scholars Are Really Saying About God in the Bible. Yes. Uh, any uh, person who'd, who'd gone to a major mainstream divinity school or seminary would say, yeah, I, that's what I learned. Uh, but somehow this never leaks through to the um, uh, ordinary uh, church member. And, and so the ordinary church member in the, in the more liberal denominations is like, well, I kind of get the idea that Pastor So and So doesn't kind of doesn't really believe, but we, but he's not going to tell you because he doesn't really know what he believes. Yeah, I have a I have a couple of friends uh, who are, or at least particularly one friend I'm thinking of in the uh, mainstream Protestant clergy, but it was uh, more trouble with faith than I do. <laughs> Why? Because it's his job to believe these things. It's not my job to believe anything in particular. I, uh, because I'm a, a writer, I have no denominational connection. I have no connection to a seminary or a university. 
I can say what I want. People will read it or not. Um, but if it's your job to teach this stuff and you're having trouble with it, uh, then you really start to squirm. Yeah, and I, I, I guess that that's part of the that's part of the conflict is. You know, for me, in my own situation, I went from, within the Assemblies of God, we obviously, we have all these things, and and, and everything that I believe is all laid out for me, and, and I'm told, basically, this is what you believe, and then when you leave that, and you realize that you have no idea what you believe, you don't, you don't know even how to get footing or grounding in that, and so, uh, I guess what I'm asking is, uh, is confusion supposed to be a part of spirituality, or how do you gain footing in you know in a in a world that has so many views and ideas about what Christianity is mm-hmm. well if you go back to ancient Greece they uh, there's there's a story about Socrates and someone sent to the oracle at Delphi and the oracle at Delphi was not just this tarot card reader that uh, you know with a shop front Del- the oracle at Delphi was consulted by states on uh, matters of policy. It was very, very prestigious. And this man is sent to the oracle and said, who's the wisest man in Greece? And the oracle sent back and said it was Socrates. And someone told Socrates this. And Socrates said, I have no idea of why the oracle said that, except that uh, I don't know anything, and uh, I'm the only person who admits that I don't know anything, and everybody else thinks they know something. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, and this was, you know, Socrates one of the wisest men in history. So, you know, to begin with your own admitted ignorance is not a bad place to be. Uh, either, at least you can start from something. Uh, I think, you know, the criterion and the touchstone is what makes sense to you, you know, both intellectually and emotionally. I think that from there, you can start to begin to, uh, you know, construct a view of the world that makes sense to you. Mm-hmm. Everyone is, everyone is going to have a theology. Uh, theology is a requisite. Uh, you'll have a theology if you want one or not, because even if you don't believe in anything, if you're an atheist or agnostic, that too is a set of beliefs about God in the world. So you're always going to have a theology. Um, the Christian theology, as uh, typically known, is very easy to understand historically. It's very easy to understand how it grew up uh, from a historical uh, background. Uh, but that doesn't make it true or doesn't make it... Um, even plausible to us today. For example, the, the, the keystone of Christian theology is conventionally understood is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Uh, I don't personally think it was a sacrifice. Um, you know, what I think it might or might not be is another question, but it's immediately easy to see why his followers would have seen it as a sacrifice. Why? because ancient religion was all about animal sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, uh, you know, everybody has this very um, uh, sentimental notion about the temple in Jerusalem and how beautiful it must have been, which apparently it was. 
But one uh, visitor in a text called a letter to Aristius, um, or of Aristius, uh, describing the temple, uh, is um, amazed by one really striking detail, which is the elaborate plumbing system they had to drain all the blood off. Mm. I mean, you know, if you sacrifice that many animals, uh, you're going to have a lot of blood to deal with. Apparently, they, the, the plumbing system and their, their sanitation system, according to the letter of Aristius, is pretty good which is impressive. But all of it, I, uh, ancient religion practically consisted of animal sacrifice, pagan and Jewish. So from that point of view, it would be natural, and you can see this in, for example, the letter to the Hebrews, uh, why uh, Christ's death would be seen in that light. Uh, that doesn't make it true. It, it means that they were grappling to understand it and did the best they could with what they had. The problem is that these grapplings, uh, canonized in the New Testament, uh, have been taken as uh, the truth, and you better believe this, or you're in serious, serious trouble with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think some of those things are difficult to believe. I mean, for me, the, the hardest thing, or the thing I think that really began to open... I guess doubt for me was the idea of hell because life is so difficult and and it's so hard as it is that it just seems it seemed to me still does really that um, you have to figure everything out and you have to believe everything right or you just don't make it and it's not that you just don't make it but you suffer for an eternity now i know not every facet of christianity has always believed that is that right no but it's been pretty common yeah um yeah and the thing about it is the problem with that doctrine is everybody has an innate sense of fairness and because a human being wants fairness, not only in society, I have two small sons and they're constantly fighting about, that's not fair, that's not fair. He got five uh, minutes more on, on the PS4 than I did, and blah, blah, blah. That sense of fairness is very deeply ingrained in us socially. And it's more deeply ingrained in us, uh, in a sense, cosmically, because we want the cosmos to be just. Uh, you know, the term theodicy, and that's really what it's about, the justice of God. Now, uh, for somebody to be... I mean, I'm just talking about from the, the ordinary point of view uh, of us today. Uh, it, most people would say, well, it's fair for somebody to be punished for something, but the punishment really ought to be at least in proportion to the crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not going to sentence someone to life in prison for swiping a... Um, a pack of gum from a drugstore. Mm-hmm. Nobody, most people would not think that was fair. But the doctrine of hell means that you're suffering an infinite amount for what can only be a finite number of offenses because you only live so long and no matter how much evil you did, uh, you, it, it's still a finite amount. So you're getting punished much, much, much worse and much, much more heavily than even the state does. And God knows, everyone in the United States knows that our prison system is an enormous mess, although no one knows quite what to do about it. But this is even worse. Mm. Oh, and by, and by the way, this is supposed to be all loving. Well, wait a minute. You and I 
have a sense of fairness, right? Uh, as everyone does. Uh, on the other hand, we're not perfect. Uh, we have our faults. We have our limits. But so, but if we wouldn't do this, God, who's supposed to be much greater, much more loving than we are, is supposed to do this. And that makes no sense whatsoever. And again, you'll see theologizing in a sort of like, well, it, it's kind of a les majesté thing kind of thing where, well, the offense of offending God is so great, it, it is an infinite offense rather than a finite one. And to believe that, you have to go through the uh, unfortunate task of becoming a theologian. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I I was interested, I read something um, when you were talking about the Gnostics, and you said, um, and I'm quoting, that the Gnostic view was extremely sophisticated. It recognized one of the most essential truths of spiritual life, that the things in ourselves with which we most identify, the personality with its likes and dislikes, loves and hatreds, are not ourselves in the deepest sense, but incrustations that fetter and impede the true essence of the self. Only spiritual illumination can free this self. Now, so when I read that, it reminds me a lot of like the Tao Te Ching or even Buddhism. Was there a, a similarity between those two views? I think so. I think one part of the esoteric tradition it, it holds that it exists and has been known at all times by however, however few people uh, and um, uh, it is not not the same in every detail but I would say that the resemblances are much stronger than the differences so yes there's, there's a great amount of um, correspondence uh, with those views uh, and one basic esoteric teaching is, to put it extraordinarily simply, there is the, the, the street-level self, which let's call it the ego, uh, and then there's the higher self, which is not God, oh, what could it be called? Well, it could be called I am, because that in you uh, is what says I am. That's why is God's name, uh, I am that I am in Exodus. Uh, well, that may give us some hint. Mm -hmm. This higher self is not, it, it is, well, it's another biblical way of putting it. You could say it's God with us or God in us. And the ego, the street level self, uh, often buries this higher self with its desires, with its agendas, its suspicions, its anxieties and uh, takes up a place of um, mastership in a, in a way that it shouldn't. Let's use a gospel parable. It becomes a servant. Uh, the master is away. That is, the high self is away. Uh, and the servant ego uh, goes out of control and starts beating up on the other servants. Uh, that is, in a way, what we do with ourselves uh, in conventional life much of the time. If the master were really home, uh, none of the servants, that is, parts of ourselves, would be beating up on any of the others. But that's, um, unfortunately, not what happens. And what I've just said is, in a way, kind of an illustration of the esoteric approach to things. The parable uh, of Christ is, is about inner experience. It's about inner 
level. It's, it's about um, uh, our own inner workings. And uh, let's put it this way. I think it's a more profound way of seeing than the more conventional explanations, which I don't think go very far. Yeah, I, I guess, um, you know, whenever you... If you read some of the, well, it's interesting. I, I heard a, a teacher by the name of Eckhart Tolle, which I'm sure you're somewhat familiar with. Um, he talked about, he was talking about the, the teachings of Jesus, and he said um, the words of Jesus are so powerful and and so true. But who has really understood them except for maybe a few Buddhists? <laughs> and uh, and I reference that quite a bit because it does seem a bit to me like the teachings and the words of Jesus, perhaps are a little bit misrepresented in the Western church. Uh, am, I, am I off on that, or is there some truth to that? Well, I think there's certainly been a... To use a word that I uh, seem to have used in that passage, um, an enormous amount of incrustation about it. But, but think about this. Let's, let's, say, let's say you wanted to start a Christian religion. God knows there are already too many of them. Mm-hmm. But all you required of people was that they do their best to live by the uh, teachings of Jesus Christ as they understood them. Everybody, not everybody's going to understand them in the same way. I'm sorry. Let's be grown-ups here. Right. Uh, you're willing to live by the teachings of Jesus Christ as presented in the Gospels. Everything else even the epistles of Paul and so on, so on, so on, is um, our advisory at best. Although Paul was a was a profound uh, adept, I suppose you say. So I'm not writing him off. But uh, let's just say uh, you want to live by the teachings of Jesus Christ, and that's your religion. Um, I think that would go a long way to solve a lot of uh, issues. Because then you could differ with people, you could even argue with people, but no, you're still attempting to live by the same teachings, which, you know, in terms of ethics and behavior, are pretty obvious. I mean, there are esoteric meanings to the God, I'm sorry, the parables, uh, and perhaps even to the story of Jesus, but the ethical teachings are quite clear, uh, and, you know, they may be understood maybe at different levels, but they still come down to the Sermon on the Mount, which everybody understands. Mm. So mm-hmm. say, what if your religion was that? Mm-hmm. Uh, and every, everything else, well, we, and you sat around and said, well, I, I disagree about this, I disagree, this sounds like that. Uh, but, you know, you, you went home at the end of the evening, still friends, uh, and you weren't um, assuming that someone... Um, is going to be damned to hell because he he understands a passage in First Corinthians differently from you. Yeah, yeah, we don't have a whole lot of that kind of leeway today for sure. Right. right. <laughs> yeah, and and I you know that's one of the things that I've noticed is that as I begin to explore um, different ideas, things that that I believe, um, I, I've I've lost friends. You know, relationships have been severed things of that nature just because people simply won't tolerate ideas that are different than their own and uh, it, it's kind of hard to believe in a spirituality that doesn't have any tolerance at least from my point of view well see here's the thing um, if you believe something you know and you or, or at least 
or didn't believe, or didn't or knew or didn't know. You're um, you could live with yourself, and you could live with other people. But if you're kind of not so sure, at, at some level, usually unconscious, uh, you have to fortify yourself against anything that could possibly change that, and you fortify yourself internally. That is, you know, you cut yourself off from people who might persuade you otherwise, or you cut yourself off institutionally. You know, you, you uh, seclude yourself with this little group of believers, uh, who all of whom, re- all of whom reinforce each other's beliefs and keep the world at bay, mm. or either that or try to make the world like your preconception of them, which is, um, uh, you know, religion and politics. But that's yet another topic. Yeah, yeah, it makes it uh, it makes it kind of tough, and I think it's one of the things that perhaps is slowly uh, the slow erosion, I guess, of of Christianity uh, here in the West is that so many people just are tired of being really told what they have to believe, and if it, if they deviate from that at all, you know, they're they're basically out. Um, how did the how did the schism, or I guess you know, it seems to me that Western Christianity and Eastern Christianity are so different in their views on living and exploring God. Um, how did this divide develop in such a in such a way that they look almost uh, like they don't even they're not even brother and sister or part of the family? Well, I think the simplest answer is. Uh, lies in the history of the Roman Empire. As you know, the Roman Empire basically in the 4th century AD began to be divided in half just because nobody could administer it all from one place. And the western half, which included Italy, France, Spain, Britain, uh, fell apart in in the 5th century. That was the fall of the Roman Empire which was really the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Because the Eastern Roman Empire, known as the Byzantine Empire, lasted until 1453. In the West, this, in, in practice, meant that there was this huge vacuum uh, and some kind of central organizing force was perceived to be needed. And the church took on that role. It, did, it didn't do this you know, accidentally, and it, 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 it fought strenuously for power. But there were no real popes in the modern sense of the word until the fall of the Roman Empire. Before then, there were bishops of Rome. Uh, and in even in um, patristic times, the bishops of Rome had no particular authority over uh, anybody else, or they had no primacy. It, it was uh, the Orthodox Church... Uh, was the way it was. It was a, a council of bishops, and uh, some had kind of pride of place, but uh, they weren't uh, exactly able to tell one another what to do. And in the East, there wasn't this power vacuum, uh, the secular power vacuum that the church had to step into. In the East, there was another problem, which is that the church became uh, basically just a wing of the Byzantine state. So in the West, you have the popes basically trying to tell the kings what to do, and the Orthodox churches in the East being not much more than um, almost sacred arms of imperial authority. 
and that's why today, what is it, has it lasted? Yes, we see, you know, and there's an enormous amount of controversy about this in the Orthodox world because the um, Patriarch of Moscow is basically acting like a tool of Vladimir Putin's. Mm-hmm. And this is unfortunately all too um, faithful to uh, one aspect of the Orthodox tradition. Yeah. Uh, now another, I mean, I mean there there are other ways of looking at it. Um, one is if you hire somebody, doing his job is immediately the guy's second priority. What is his first priority? Keeping his job. Um, it might be he hates the job, but in that case, you'll you'll fire him soon anyway, or he'll leave. But yeah, he wants to keep his job. And as you know, sometimes people really fight to keep their jobs, you know, mm-hmm. when there's no real work for them to do. But you multiply this impulse uh, by any number of people and you have an institution whose chief objective is its own self-perpetuation. And that simple thing explains a great deal about Christian and organizational history, but we're talking about Christianity here. So it, it becomes its own um, objective. This is particularly true in um, Roman Catholicism, where what do we see? We're, we see all this clerical pederasty, uh, um, right? And everybody's a bit shocked because not I mean that it happened is certainly bad enough, but that the church has so assiduously covered it up for so long. Why? Because, hey, if you think about it, it only could be because the perpetuation of the church is more important than perpetuating the teachings of Christ, which uh, I would assume uh, would not encourage or would forbid that kind of abuse. So there you go. The institution becomes the objective. Uh, this is, uh, Dostoevsky saw this in his legend of the Grand Inquisitor in um, uh, the Brothers Karamazov. Jesus comes back, and um, again, he's not welcomed. And the Inquisitor puts him in prison and says to him, you know, well, you know, look, you gave us all our, all, all the power, you gave us all the keys to the kingdom, so we don't really need you anymore, so buzz off, or at least, you know, don't meddle with things for, for the time being. So Dostoevsky said that, saw that. Uh, and so that's a lot of what's going on. And the thing about politics is always going to be there, because politics is always going to be any place where there's more than one person in a room. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even when there is only one person in a room, um, given our rather uh, divided self-nature. Uh, so it, it's going to be there, uh, but... It starts, all of these things, the institutions, all become their own agenda. Uh, again, this is not unique uh, to Christianity or the Christian church. It explains an enormous about, about world history and current events. But, you know, let's just stick to the topic here. Yeah. Anyway, that's how I see it. Yeah, so uh, it, it, it's interesting, I guess, because, you know, for me it was so, the, the Christian tradition was so narrow and then as I read your book, 
um, I realized that there was so much variance. You know, Origen seems to believe in uh, the pre-existence of soul, uh, perhaps, maybe even reincarnation. It's hard to tell by some of the things he says, but um, there's just this huge variety, and it even looked like, to me, um, that some of these sects or groups even practiced some forms of spell work, and certainly... Um, even divination, like tarot cards or casting lots and those kinds of things. So that that's something that even though the Western church, you know, it just has this vehement stand against, that's not necessarily something that has been excluded from the Christian tradition at large. Is that correct? No. And, you know, let's, let's take the whole subject of, the tarot, of tarot cards because it's generally considered to be... Um, I mean, my wife even said she's she's had lunch with some wives. Just oh, t- tarot cards—they're satanic. Well, no, they're not satanic. Uh, they don't have anything to do with Satanism, uh, and there is such a thing as Satanism, uh, but they don't have anything to do with. It doesn't have anything to do with tarot cards. But tarot is, is a symbol of, shall we say, sacred images. Uh, where was it invented? It was invented around 1450 in the court, the ducal court of Milan. As far as anyone can tell, and it's based on what the Italians call the triumphi or triumphs. Uh, now, in those medieval parades, they they would have these what we would today call floats, uh, and one float would be the wheel of fortune. Another float would be death. Another float would be. Um, uh, name of the game of the tarot was Triomphi, and that was incorporated into the card game and added on to the playing cards. Uh, you could say, from a Jungian point of view, that the, that the cards are kind of a um, kind of a library of the collective unconscious, the archetypes of the collective unconscious. Uh, all of, unfortunately, we have all of these things in all of us. There's the lover, there's the devil, there is Midwest. Well, you know, it's interesting, um, groups like, um, and, and I realized that they were, they had a, some variables within them, but the Rosicrucians, um, the Martinists, 
these guys had at least a foundation that was Christian, or is that incorrect? Oh yeah, no, they they were uh, they were very very Christian. Um, again, with most of these groups, one of the central teachings—it's not that they didn't believe in Jesus, even in a necessarily in a fairly theologically uh, conservative way, but they saw the whole story of Jesus as uh, figurative of certain things of the self and the journey mm. of the self. I mean, as I said, in inner Christianity, what is the story of Jesus? Well, uh, God comes down to earth, and he's incarnated as man. He kind of goes around, he lives his life, he, he plays his part on the world stage, he has friends and enemies, and eventually he dies a painful and humiliating death on a cross known as time and space. And, as a matter of fact, that doesn't really mean anything. Mm. Because what is true and real about him is immortal and does not die. And so that is the story of Christ and that's the story of each of us. And that's why people are still drawn to it 2,000 years later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um so if we if you were going to give and this this may not be fair and it may be kind of hard to do but if you were going to define i guess what an esoteric christian is <laughs> how would you do how would you go about that someone who understands that there uh is a deep meaning to uh the stories of the bible the stories of christ and understands what they have to do with inner experience. You may or may not believe in the literal truth of them. And to go back to Origen, he said, you know, uh, not all of the things in the Bible are true. Not even all of the things in the Gospels are true. Uh, who is so stupid as to believe that God planted a garden in the East like some farmer and put the trees in it that you could have fruit from? No. This Origen was writing, what, 230 A.D.? Mm. Uh, no, these things refer to certain mysteries. Uh, and they do. Um, they can be discussed. And I would say an esoteric Christian is someone who explores or at least tries to understand some of these mysteries. Mm. And that requires a certain humility because it, at the very least, means, uh, you know, go around... Um, bashing people's heads over what the Bible or your idea of what the Bible is. Mm -hmm. So, is there in is there a difference between esoteric Christianity and say Christian uh, mysticism? Well, those terms are used in widely different ways, mm -hmm. and in a non-technical sense, you might use them in more or less the same way, but. As um, as I said in the book, the mystic uh, really kind of seeks an absorption with God and in God, and everything else between is a distraction. Mm. But the esoteric Christian is, in a sense, trying to do the same thing, but realizes that there are a lot of different levels and aspects to the self and that it's helpful to understand these 
I mean, a very basic view of the uh, of esoteric Christianity is well. If you read the New Testament carefully, you will see that the the Christian the Christians who wrote the New Testament did not believe that there was a body and soul. They believed there was a body and a soul and a spirit. Mm-hmm. This was forgotten. And if you, I call up any uh, clergyman you want, ask him what the difference is between the soul and the spirit, and he will give you an incredibly vague answer. But this, this, this thing was very, very precise because, and it corresponds very exactly to us as we experience ourselves. Meaning, you have a set of experiences uh, that have to do with feelings, sensations, sights, sounds, and all of this can be grouped together under the general term of the body, that is to say, ordinary physical experience. And then there's things you see with your eyes closed. If you see if you close your eyes, you know, fall asleep, you'll start to see images. You'll see them even if you do fall asleep. Uh, you'll have thoughts, opinions, feelings, uh, memories will come to mind. And this is what we conventionally call a psyche. Mm-hmm. And guess what? The word, this comes from the Greek word psyche, and every time in most versions of the New Testament, whenever you see the word soul, it's a translation of psyche, psyche. So your soul is your psyche. And then there's a spirit. Because somewhere, some down, someplace down deep, something is watching this all. That is to say, there is a cognizing subject within. And the early Christians called this the pneuma or the spirit. Mm-hmm. So there is the world of outer experience, the body, the world of inner experience, the psyche, and that which experiences, which is the spirit. Um, it, if you think about it, there, it'd be very hard to come up with a more simple or elegant view of human nature as we experience ourselves. But if you don't have the, if you don't see this, and it, you know, once you see it, it's actually fairly obvious. You get into all sorts of theologizing, and um, well. Spin that those wheels for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah, man. People, people do. <laughs> they still are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I guess as we uh, kind of come to a close here, you know, again, the the book Inner Christianity, I just think is a, just a brilliant work, and um, you have a couple other books that look just incredible as well. So, for someone who's kind of starting out on this path of of discovery. And opening themselves up to new ideas, but they they kind of want to retain their, you know, their, their Christian, uh, I guess, religion at the, at a base level. Um, aside from reading your book, what what are some other maybe, um, I guess, positive steps someone could take uh, in their experience? Well. Here's, I think, a, a point that's often overlooked. Okay. You can lose all your theology and still believe in God. Um, there's a force 
a being, a person, however you, that's uh, variously described, um, from whom everything arises. Um, my sons, when they were smaller, asked me, well, what is God? The only answer I could come up with at the moment was God is the source of everything. God is where everything comes from. As a matter of fact, I, I since then, haven't been able to think of a much better answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't need to lose your faith in that to lose your faith in various theologies. And you could say at some level or another that that is the rock uh, on which, uh, as opposed to the shifting sands of uh, ideas and opinions, all of which include, of course, theology. I think the other thing to do and this is by far the most important thing, is to be really honest with yourself. What do I really believe? Yeah. Um, ideally, it should correspond with your experience. What have I experienced? Maybe you have had spiritual experiences. What does that mean? Um, a lot of times people bury these things over because they can't, uh, they don't know how to um, absorb them. They don't know anyone in the entire world who could make sense of them or even could listen to them without making fun of them or um, sneering at them. Uh, so you do have a certain experience. What makes sense to you practically? And that, that inner sincerity, that inner honesty, is, I think, probably the, the single most important characteristic. And um, being honest with yourself doesn't necessarily mean being honest with everybody else. Uh, you may have to ex- exercise some discretion in, um, you know, telling mommy and daddy or, uh, you know, the people in your extended family about what you do or don't think. Um, that's highly individual. Mm. But I think I think those two things are the most important uh, that I would I would recommend. Uh, so that, you know, just just to throw out all the theology doesn't mean um, you're totally at sea. Yeah. Be having said that, okay. What what parts make sense to me and what parts don't? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. That that's a good idea. Um. And and I think that there is a lot of truth to to saying, okay. You know, I I, I have no idea what I believe, so I'm going to get rid of everything except for the one thing that I do believe in, and then, you know, allow myself to to let this thing, I guess, grow a little bit more uh, organically as opposed to, you know, so many of the ideas we have. I mean, I could tell you that I never at any time of my Christianity truly believed in a hell. And at some point I was willing to admit to myself that I didn't. And, uh, yeah, I, I probably didn't need to let everybody know that <laughs> until I was ready for the, you know, the crucifixion. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I agree that... Um, a man's greatest enemy shall be those of his own household. Um, you probably know what that means from a highly personal point of view. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, now, as far as getting in contact with you, I guess, um, and finding out about your your stuff, I, I know you, you have a website, and uh, it, I, I don't remember the address offhand. It's innerchristianity.com, just innerchristianity, all spelled together, dot com. And um, people can send me an email via that. My books are uh, all available through the usual sources like Amazon. And 
at this point, actually, there are a fair number of YouTube videos of my lectures and uh, conversations and interviews online. So um, you could, if you felt like it, you could binge watch me. Um, so that, that's it's fairly easy to have access to my stuff. And if you really need contact to me, uh, uh, by all means, you can do so through my website. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got it. Is a great website, and there's so many great books on there. I. I can't wait to dive into them. And again, Inner Christianity was just life-altering for me. It was uh, so well-written and thorough, uh, and, and it just built as it went along. And so it's just a brilliant work. I, I thank you so much for doing it. Well, thank you. I mean, I um, one of my intentions when I wrote it was, um, I hope this goes to the people uh, who want it or need it. And... Uh, I've had enough response from people uh, to know that, you know, in a lot of cases it has. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. So last question, then I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, do you consider yourself a, a Christian? Yes, in the way that I already described. Right. That That is to say, uh, do I sincerely try to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ? Yes. Um, and I take all of the other stuff as advisory. One thing we didn't get into is the Apostle Paul. Uh, and he's problematic because some of the things he says uh, rub people the wrong way today. But uh, some of those things he says he didn't really say because uh, some of the epistles attributed to him were not by him, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and even in the ones that he did write, um, passages got stuck in, like um, the one about women being silent in churches. That's Scholars consider that to be an interpolation, putting somebody on. In fact, it doesn't even fit in the context of um, uh, what Paul is actually talking about. I think Paul was a great um, uh, sage, and um, I have the highest amount of respect for him. But, um, you know, I, I don't think we have to take every last thing he said as um, sacred scripture. Hmm. I, he does seem I, to be a bit of a mystic, though, in his own right. Well, he said he was taken up to the third heaven, uh, and in those days, the Jewish mystics, well, they still do, have different levels of heaven. Sometimes there were three heavens, sometimes there were seven, um, and he sounds awfully like he was, he said, I know a man in Christ who was taken up, and most scholars who read that think, yeah, he's pretty much talking about himself, but he's being uh, humble. So <laughs> yes, he was, he was a, and much of what he says is extraordinarily profound, so... Uh, you know, I'm not one of those people who, um, I mean, there's this kind of tendency that Jesus is the good guy and all they dislike about Christianity is foist upon Paul, and I don't, uh, I, I don't buy that. Uh, uh, at the same time, I don't, you know, I don't feel I have to live by uh, the advice in the epistles to Timothy or anything like that. Right, yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much for for being on. I I would really love to do this again, and and uh, well, any time I'd be pleased to be on again. Just uh, you know, just drop me a line when you feel like it, and um, I'd be very happy to uh, talk further about this or various other things. Oh yeah, I, I tell you, it's nice because um, so much of the journey is uh, it, it, it's really you're picking up bits and pieces here and there. So. Uh, when you're someone who is, I guess, wants some sort of foundation, you know, like when I came across inner Christianity, it just, uh, 
it was so thoroughly and well thought out and that it makes me excited to get some of your some of your other material as well so yeah i'd, I'd love to have you on again and well, and just good. do some more discussion okay well i hope you enjoy uh, my other books and it was a, a pleasure to chat with you yeah hang on the line just for a second i'm going to close this out and uh and come back to you so everybody thank you for listening today and i will talk to you on the other side of the music Hey guys, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, man. I hope you really enjoyed it. Now, um, Richard has a ton of books available and they all look incredibly interesting. I can, I can only vouch right now. uh, This won't be this, this won't be the truth in a few weeks. I can only vouch for the book Inner Christianity right now, which is brilliant. But he's got some incredible works that I, that I'm really dying to get a hold of. Now, um, I mentioned at the beginning and during, so we might as well do it now, um, innerchristianity.com is how you could really find out almost everything you need to know about Richard Smalley. Now, all of his stuff is also available on Amazon. I noticed it was all, all that stuff was on there. And I'll, and I'll place the website, the, some of the Amazon links and so forth in the show notes as well. But if you dug it, man, go check that out. Guys, continue to help me um, grow the audience of this podcast, if you would. Let people know it exists. Um, I, I noticed some of you on some of the Facebook stuff, you've mentioned it. You've mentioned things that you've heard. Um, thank you so much for doing that. It really means a lot to me. When you connect with the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, a Twitter, that also um you know, I know it sounds strange, but it's incredibly encouraging uh, to me to know that you're out there and that we're connected. All right, guys. So that is it. Thanks for joining me. See you next week. Done. Done.